This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware, and this is the final episode before the election So happy to be with you. This episode, what I'd like to do is provide a bit of a recap of faith in this campaign and then talk about what what you should be looking for on election night as the results come in. Before doing that, just want to mention a a couple things, a couple updates. Uh, First, some of you may have found this podcast uh, through the AND campaign where I served for uh, the last two years and a quarter in October, I left the AND campaign to pursue some, some, uh, uh, other opportunities. Just want to thank those of you who found this podcast through the AND campaign. I continue to be a supporter of AND, uh, and believe in AND's mission and the work it's doing and, uh, supporter of Justin. And so, Grateful for the organization, for the board, and for the AND community. One of the opportunities, short term, real short term, is uh, that I'm involved in advising an effort called Not Our Faith, uh, which is a political action committee with a, a specific mission to uh, oppose Donald Trump's reelection. And so that's what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks. It's what I'll be doing for the remaining days prior to the election. Uh, won't talk about that too much here, except to say you can watch the ads that we've released on Not Our Faith, uh, notourfaith.com. Again, that's notourfaith.com. Excited about uh, what we have planned for the uh, last few days of the election here, including including one final ad that we'll be releasing, and it's just been a it's just been a, a great experience. Uh, want to reiterate and reaffirm that. Uh, you all can expect from me what I hope you've uh, come to expect from me. Um, not Our Faith has a particular mission, and Not Our Faith's work is going to be oriented toward that mission in my other work and in my life and just the way I, um, uh, the way I live uh, on social media, etc. Uh, you can uh, continue to expect that I'm going to call it like I see it, that I'm going to hold both sides accountable, uh, that I did not take my uh, marching orders from politics and and political parties. And so, um, but did want to uh, just mention not our faith and would urge you to check it out. Uh, but this this podcast is not affiliated with not our faith. All right, let's get in to a bit of a, a bit of a recap. I, I mean, so... When I decided to start this podcast, it was done on the assumption, A, that generally faith matters in American presidential elections, that even when it's been overlooked by sort of top-line analysis, it's mattered greatly, uh, particularly in every presidential election uh, this century, and then obviously prior 
to them as well. And so that assumption. And then B, that this election in particular, faith would be important. Donald Trump really needs faith to work for him in a maximal kind of way in order to win re-election. I did have an open question, frankly, as to the extent to which the Biden campaign would recognize that and contend with that and deal with that. And my first sort of takeaway from this is uh, this campaign is that the Biden campaign hasn't done everything, you know, I would recommend from a strategic perspective, certainly hasn't done everything sort of my own personal view in politics I would like to see. What's undeniable, though, is that they've been incredibly strategic when it comes to faith, uh, that they have met the, you know, the bar that I set at the beginning of this podcast that I've laid out, which is, which, you know, I've argued that the Democratic nominee failed uh, to meet in 2016. Um, there is no good faith sort of observer who's watched this election who could say that Joe Biden has not extended an invitation to diverse people of faith in this country, including moderate and conservative religious folks, to support his campaign, that he wants their vote. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the most effective invitation. It doesn't mean every invitation is going to be accepted. (laughs) Uh, But the invitation's been extended. That's due in large part to who Joe Biden is. It's due to Greg Schultz, campaign manager during the primary, who set the tone, who made some significant hires, who understands faith outreach himself. Has to do with Jen O'Malley Dillon, who's been the uh, campaign manager for the end of the primary and the general, uh, who was my, uh, who I reported to, who, who oversaw the department I was in on the 2012 campaign and has experience on faith in, in faith that way. And frankly, knows how to win elections has to do with Josh Dixon and John McCarthy and several faith staff that the Biden campaign has hired from an infrastructure perspective. They, they've, they put in some resources in staffing. And so that, that, that's been a bar that's been, that's been met. And, and it means, it means something. Donald Trump has confirmed my uh, assumption. And he has gone boldly uh, and directly after particularly conservative religious voters. He has expanded his appeal, or at least he has expanded kinds of people he's working with. And we talked about this earlier in the episodes. 2016, it was largely sort of televangelists, big-name pastors from a, a, a relatively narrow slice of Christianity, not to mention evangelicalism. He's used the four years as president and in preparation for this campaign to identify other pockets of potential support within evangelicalism in particular. They've identified the importance of the Catholic vote and have done Catholic events. They put Amy Coney Barrett center stage. Now, Joe Biden didn't take the bait there. Actually, Joe Biden not not only didn't take the bait himself, I think it's pretty clear he exerted some party discipline, which should caution those who think that Joe Biden is is uh, you know going to be used by the left. What I saw on, in the ACB uh, confirmation and process 
was Joe Biden is the leader of this party. Now, that's one one case. We'll, we'll, if Joe Biden is, is elected, uh, we'll, we'll get a larger sample size for sure. Um, but it should be a caution to those who think that, uh, that Joe Biden uh, can't put up a fight or, or doesn't have an opinion on how the party should navigate these kinds of issues. We've seen really direct faith outreach, not just from Trump, but just this week, Christian Post puts up op-eds from Joe Biden and from Mike Pence. And just a side note, it's really telling that they had the op-ed come from Mike Pence and not from Donald Trump. Christianity Today, Josh Dixon wrote for uh, Ed Stetzer at Christianity Today, as did Paula White from the Trump campaign. Again, for those of you who have listened to this this uh, podcast from the beginning, and the reason why we did it this way is so that when things like this happen, you understand that these things don't need to happen. It is not something to be taken for granted that these campaigns, uh, particularly the Democratic campaign, would take an opportunity like that. It's it's significant. Resources are being put towards faith voters that you, you couldn't and you can't always count on. Mind Campaign has been putting out uh, both explicit faith ads and then ads where faith is woven in, including this week an ad, which if you don't know anything about scripture, you may not get it. If you do know something about scripture, you'll recognize that this ad that is on the surface about character broadly actually goes through the fruit of the spirit. Joy, love, peace, kindness. I mean, it, it's... um. They, they, they have, the, the Biden campaign itself has been really sophisticated when it comes to faith. Doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean that every tactical decision has been right from my perspective. But here's what I'd say. It is unfair from the outside to put that level of analysis on a campaign. Cause you just don't know what constraints, what other factors were at play. And just no one likes a Monday morning quarterback. Uh, so what I've been looking as an analyst, someone who cares about this election as a citizen, as a strategist, like, do they get the broad strokes right? Have they extended the invitation? And when it comes to that, they they have. I mean, there's there's just no question. If Joe Biden loses this race, I could come up with reasons and things that he could have done differently things that he should have done differently. Uh, But more than that, and unlike 2016, if Joe Biden loses this race, really the onus is, um, for for me personally, like the way I'm going to think about it is, well, if Joe Biden loses, like I I really need to reevaluate how I'm thinking about politics. I did not feel that way in 2016. It was really clear to me in 2016 that that was an arrogant campaign that committed serious malpractice, that, 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 was without excuse. Biden campaign has done significant to reach out to faith voters. And frankly, they've done enough to win against a man like Donald Trump. Not to win against anybody that Republicans could have possibly put up, but I'm, I'm going to have a hard time, hard time justifying or explaining in a, com- in a convincing way why, why Biden lost if, if, if he loses. The question is, is he going to lose? And for that, uh, you're going to have to wait for after the break. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. 
All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. And what I'd like to do in this segment is just talk about some things to look for on election night and as election results come in. The first thing would be, you know, the the New York Times put together a pretty helpful, the headline here is, uh, it's from The Upshot, which is a vertical under the New York Times. The headline is, how long will voting, uh, how long will vote counting take estimates and deadlines in all 50 states? Uh, Alicia Parlapiano wrote this uh, article. New York Times will continue to update it as they get more information in. Really helpful. It'll give you a good sense of when states are expecting to be able to report total results and what that's going to look like. All that to say, the first thing to look for on election night is it's possible, a real, (laughs) real possibility that we don't have an outcome decided not just election night, but like into the following day. Now, we may get there and things might be clear and people will say, oh, I don't know what everyone was freaking out about. It it worked out. It's just like, you know, when the weather guy says a huge storm is coming and it turns out to be, you know, a little drizzle. But but there are some, some real legitimate reasons why people are concerned. One, our system doesn't have real precedent for processing the level of mail-in, absentee, and early votes that that we're projected to have. Now, the system could bear that, but it's it's untested. And in several states, in many states, mail and absentee ballots can't be counted until election night. And so there will be a delay there. In other states, they can be counted. And so depending on those dynamics, depending on whether mail-in Absentee ballots favor Biden or Trump, and most people think they're going to favor Biden, um, or whether on the same day, sort of election day voting favors Trump or Biden. People think uh, largely because they expect mail-in, mail-in voting to favor Biden so much, they expect day of to, to favor Trump. Y- y- you got to know what states are looking at. And as election results come in, uh, you got to know uh, what the state rules are and whether uh, when polls close, whether mail-in absentee ballots will be included when they roll out the first sort of tranche of results or whether they're just beginning to count them. And so it, it's it would be impossible for me in this episode, uh, given everything else to cover, to walk through the state. So I would just urge you to go to that document, uh, to that article. I'm going to have that article open all election night, and and I'm going to use it as a guide for 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 those kinds of questions. So that's the first thing you should be on the lookout for. Uh, don't prejudge the results. And then number two, relatedly, don't be too anxious about thinking your candidate won. I think everyone's hope is that we'll have a clear result, relatively, you know, uh, on November third. We we might not. So just be aware of that. When it comes to faith, let me just rattle off some some factors to look at. One, and this is really not in order of priority. These are just some things to, to look out for. One, do we see a significant bump for Donald Trump among black or Hispanic men? That'll be one. We've talked about why we've talked about the play that Trump has been making there. We'll see if that has an effect. Two, what do Rust Belt white Catholics look like? Three, there are 
several important, we probably won't be able to tell this on election night, but there are vital religious minority communities in Michigan, which could be a pivotal state. What is the role of the Muslim community in Michigan in deciding that election? What is the role of Chaldean Christians in deciding that election? Michigan is a state where so many of the religious factors that we've talked about over the last year and a half are at play. Religious minorities, uh, Rust Belt Catholics, evangelicals in Grand Rapids, significant black church influence in that state. Uh, they have significant refugee and immigrant populations in the state. So, so much is at play in Michigan. It's a diverse state. You got Detroit, you got factory towns, you got suburbs. I mean, it's Michigan has a lot going on. Can we tell, so look at white evangelicals broadly, nationally, is Biden breaking 20%? And then, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, typically in previous elections, white evangelicals overperform the national average in terms of support for Democrats in the Rust Belt, generally speaking, and in the Mountain West, and drastically underperform the national average in the South. So, for instance, in I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in like 2008, Obama was getting 10% of white evangelicals in Georgia and would get something like 30% in a state like Pennsylvania. And so, how, how does that play out? What I am hoping is that, frankly, is that we'll continue to see that. What I have been seeing early signs of, which I've been tentative about, suggesting until I actually see see the result, uh, until I actually see some hard numbers for people actually voting, I've seen some early signs that white evangelicals are increasingly voting the same no matter where they're from or where they live. And so, yes, that could mean a little bump up in the South among white evangelicals, uh, but it, it also suggests that sort of the way that race and evangelicalism are interacting might be transcending geographic uh, uh, differences in a way that, in my view, is is not helpful. And so, uh, keep uh, keep an eye on on that. There was a poll that was pointed out to me. You know, there hasn't been a ton of polling on mainline Protestants. And so, you know, I uh, take this with a grain of salt, but it has perked my interest up enough to be on the lookout for, uh, there was a a national poll that showed basically a 30-point flip among white mainliners that who supported Donald Trump by about 10 points in 2016 to supporting Biden by 20. Uh, That seems to me to be, I mean, a flip like that would be profound, even, you know, if mainliners end up, uh, white mainliners only end up accounting for, you know, 15% of the electorate. That's, that's the, the 30 points among, among that, uh, that 50% is huge. And so that's something to look out for as well. Uh, I will be looking to see, uh, if there is a, um, a pro-life question on, in exit polling and how that maps onto this election. Is Joe Biden elected with 25% of those who, with the support of 25% of those who consider themselves to be pro-life. And, and, and what does, what might that suggest for, you know, the coalition he has and that, you know, potentially puts him into the White House. So those are a few, uh, 
that's a handful. There are other things I'm going to be looking for. Those are some of the some of the main things. In the next segment, when I talk about actually how I think this is going to turn out, we'll talk about states to look at and that kind of thing. But here's something that has not been announced yet. Happy to announce it here. If you want help looking out for things on Election Day, I'm here for you at reclaiminghope.substack.com. We're going to be doing a live thread throughout the election night. We're going to be hosting a conversation with analysis. And uh, it won't just be me. We're going to have guests coming through on election night to offer their analysis, both political science folks, political practitioners, uh, leaders you know and trust. And so I'm excited about uh, I'm excited about doing that. And so basically starting at 7 p.m. on election night, start tuning in to reclaiminghope.substack.com where I'll be uh, along with others providing analysis, answering questions, and uh, just tr- trying to enjoy the night as much as possible uh, with, with all of you. Uh, all right, we're going to take one more break. When we get back, I'm going to tell you uh, how I think this is all going to shake out. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, and in this final segment, I am going to tell you how I think this is going to shake out. I do not think that this election is wrapped up for Joe Biden. I think there's a there's a chance that the Donald Trump wins. And basically what that would look like would be very similar to 2016. Maybe uh, Trump loses Wisconsin, but he hangs on basically in the Rust Belt. He wins Pennsylvania, similar fashion to how he won Michigan by, you know, just just, you know, the slimmest of margins. You know, maybe Biden picks up, you know, Arizona, but he falls short in North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and and there just aren't enough states. The 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 Biden bet on the Rust Belt doesn't fly. Catholics, white Catholics in the Rust Belt stick with Trump. Trump gets 80% of white evangelicals in the Rust Belt as opposed to 75 or 70. Trump Trump's play for Black men, in particular, gets him an extra five or seven points. Biden's margin among Hispanic voters is less than what he needs, and turnout is low because, well, for low, it could be low for a number of reasons, but all the questions around sort of voting lead to um, lower turnout among. Hispanics in particular. Trump can pull like an inside straight. I think we've learned no one should no one should count him out. That being said, even in the scenario I just laid out, some of it we just know isn't going to be true, or it would be hard for it to be true. This is not going to be a low turnout election. We don't think, unless everybody who's who's voting is going to be voting early and not on election day. Because right now, as we look generally at early vote and mail in vote. We're projected, particularly in many of the battleground states, to be well over 2016 numbers, which is not good for, which we don't think will be good for Donald Trump. I, I mean, just to, this is, because this is the culmination of the Faith 2020 podcast, we'll do maybe one or two episodes after the election. I'm going to try and uh, uh, put myself on the line a, a little bit here. So I'll try and use I as much as possible. I don't think high turnout benefits Donald Trump generally. 
And then the other factor, which I should have talked about in the last segment, is what percentage of the electorate are white evangelicals? If white evangelicals are 22, 23% of the electorate, that'll be a pretty good indication that, that he's going to get blown out. If we look at exit polling and white evangelicals are 27, 26% of the electorate, then, you know, the game, uh, it, it's not over. It's, it's not over. He's in the running as far as, you know, how things look, you know, at the beginning of the night. But I don't think Donald Trump is going to win. I also, if I'm going to be honest, I don't think Joe Biden is going to squeak by with a victory. I think Joe Biden has done what is necessary, especially considering the candidate he's facing, to to win a significant victory on Tuesday. I think Biden's bet on the Rust Belt will pay, uh, pay off. I am not someone who necessarily is willing to put my name next to a prediction that he wins Texas, uh, that he wins Georgia. It's not impossible, though. But but what I'm looking at is 320, 330 electoral vote, but significant popular vote win for Joe Biden. I think the most important sort of the the key state in all of this is Pennsylvania. I think whoever wins Pennsylvania is likely to win the election. If Biden wins Pennsylvania, it's hard to see him losing Michigan, hard to see him losing Wisconsin. And so Pennsylvania is a state worth keeping an eye on. I expect Biden to win Catholics overall. I expect him to hold the white Catholic margin to uh, 10 points or less. And I think it would be significant if it was if if he lost white Catholics from by just you know five points, if if Joe Biden wins white Catholics, this race is going to be a he's going to demolish Donald Trump. I think white evangelicals will account for twenty five percent of the electorate, maybe twenty four. I think Biden will win twenty two percent, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less. You know, twenty to twenty five percent. I think he'll be in that margin. If he gets any more than that, again, it will indicate a, a really significant, significant uh, victory. There hasn't been enough polling for me to feel like I can give a, a good sort of sense of how, you know, the Hispanic evangelical vote, for instance, is going to turn out. We just haven't had enough enough numbers. Do think it's a critical vo- vote to watch on Election Day. But so that that's what I expect to see. I, I think... Texas and Georgia are probably a bit too early that 2024 may be there in play, but wouldn't it be surprised to see Biden at least close in Ohio? Wouldn't it be surprised to see Biden potentially win Florida, potentially win Arizona? So that that's my prediction. I'm predicting Joe Biden between, say, 320, 340 electoral votes. It's possible he wins with more. It's possible all he does is win back the Rust Belt, win back Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. It's possible Trump wins with 279. Peg, uh, Pascal Manuel Gobri, uh, a journalist and, and think tanker at EPPC, tweeted out today what I think is the most likely Trump victory map, where Trump holds on to Arizona, holds on to Pennsylvania, loses Michigan, Wisconsin, but holds the South. And I think that's the most realistic Trump victory map, where 
Biden isn't able to win back the entire Rust Belt. He gets Michigan. He gets Wisconsin. Biden holds on to Minnesota. But because Pennsylvania sticks in, uh, sticks with Trump, uh, Trump wins. But but that goes down to Biden's entire bet on, you know, really like why, why Biden felt it was important. Biden, I think, was personally uh, uh, felt personally um, insulted, not the right word. Let me just say it this way. I think Biden doesn't think there's any way that he would have lost Pennsylvania to Donald Trump in 2016. And so, you know, if the race comes down to Pennsylvania in a in a in one sense, that's the way it ought to be, you know, like but if Trump wins, that'll be the map. That's that's not what I expect. All right. We're going to head into one more break. And then I want to just talk directly to Christians about this election before we head into election day. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. All right, we're back. This is the Faith 2020 podcast and wanted to give something of a, a closing message before we head into the election. And we'll do a recap episode. We'll uh we'll 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 walk through the results. We'll see what we we're wrong about and uh, heading into this thing and, and what we got right. But how I want to send you off is just want to make a, a few comments. One, this this election's an important one. I, th- I think it's a it's an election that'll help us decide what kind of country we want to be, what kind of leadership we want to affirm, what what direction we want to go in. And it's a really important moment to be making those kinds of decisions. There has been I've noticed a real rise in the kind of religious manipulation when it comes to voting that has always concerned me, whether it comes from the left or the right. A couple people have asked me to comment more extensively on John Piper's uh, blog, a uh, blog post on Al Mohler's post. I did comment a, a bit on each, particularly on Mohler's, and you could go to my Twitter to read that. I'm not, I'm not overly interested in this point in doing sort of point by point rebuttals. Uh, I wrote my perspective about how Christians should think about voting at reclaiminghope.substack.com, and it's been um, really encouraging to to see that it's been helpful to so many of you. Would encourage you to to go to reclaiminghope.substack.com, read that post. Uh, others have contributed great thoughts as well on this. The the deeper work that our country needs will not be accomplished on election day, and if Christians think that the primary contribution that we have to make to this country is in what we do in this election, in any election. I, I, I think that's misguided. I feel strongly about this election. That's why I've been doing the work over the last few weeks in particular that, that I'm doing. I want to be very clear about something. It's my my work, my opinions on how, on who should win this election are prudential opinions. I come to them as a Christian, but I don't baptize them as the Christian position. And we ought to be very careful about sort of declaring certainty about what God wants in this election. I want God's will to be done. And my role is to steward, all of our role as citizens is to steward the vote that we have for the good of our neighbor, the best way we know how, in discernment with scripture, in prayer, in consultation, with good counsel, with consideration for our neighbors, particularly the poor and the disinherited, those who are facing injustice. There is no single way, there is no single faithful vote. There is no, there is no 
There is not just one way to be faithful in this election. You can vote a certain way that would be faithful for someone else. But because of the orientation of your heart, the intent of your heart, it's unfaithful. And then, you know, I, I just want to look for the, uh, many of you have, have voted already. Some of you have not have not voted yet. If you're listening to this podcast, I assume, you know, you, you've, you've thought at least pretty seriously about your vote. And actually, I'd say if you're, if you're someone who's been listening to this podcast, then I assume a number of things about you and, and the, 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 the level of thought you've given. Don't allow folks to, to bully you about this election. Uh, don't, don't feel overly burdened about this. We each have one vote. It's our job to steward it well. It's our job to do the best we can to try and weigh the options before us and cast our vote in a way that's intended towards the good of our neighbor as best as we can determine it. But God is not ignorant of <laughs> the nature of our politics. The, the, the number of decisions that the president will make, in particular, I think all elections are complicated, for the president, the number of decisions that the president is responsible for in so many ways, it's just unfair to, there's, there's no algorithm that will sort of help you as a foolproof way of, if you just plug in some, you know, some facts, the, the right vote will come out. There are just going to be some factors you're not going to be aware of. There are known unknowns and unknowns, unknowns, <laughs> uh, unknown unknowns. There are regulatory decisions and Supreme Court appointments and legislative priorities and staffing decisions and character issues. We need to think Christianly about our vote. We need to be really careful about declaring that there is a Christian way to vote. And so I want you to hear from me that my confidence is in the idea that so long as Christians are thinking Christianly, my my confidence is bolstered that God can use that in a way that's going to benefit everybody. That I am more certain, not completely certain, but I am more certain in a decision that's made by a community of discerning Christians and, and the influence that they can have as leaven in our society than I am with my knowledge about what I think is the right way to move forward. Now, that doesn't alleviate me or excuse me from having to act. I'm, I'm an individual. So, right, we have to make our opinions known. I think we should always have in the back of my, like maybe God is doing something through my neighbor who thinks differently than I do. That That is beneficial in a way that's different from the contribution that I'm making. Like, like maybe I'm not the central player in all of this. <laughs> I hope I'm being faithful. I hope I'm being, but like, we, we need to think as individuals, even if I, I think what I'm doing is in line with Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, even if I feel really good about my vote or what I'm thinking about and speaking about politically, should always be in the back of our mind that that little bit of humility that, yeah, maybe it's faithful for you, but maybe what's faithful for you isn't what ought to dictate everything for everybody. Yeah, two other things I want to do. I've offered these before. These are just some questions that I recommend folks think about when they vote. For those of you who haven't voted, even for those of you who have, as you're talking with others over, over you know, this weekend leading up to Tuesday, here's just a few questions. First, when you're thinking about your vote as a Christian, think about what your self-interest is in the particular election. 
Some folks, I think, bristle at this because they think uh, politics is too dictated by self-interest. And I agree, but that's exactly why we need to be explicit about what our self-interest is. What I found is that if people aren't clear about what their self-interest is and, and don't state what their self-interest is, uh, they'll often just pass that off as something that's in the general interest without acknowledging that it's, it's, it's in their self-interest. And we're allowed to consider our self-interest, both civically and, and, and I, I don't think that there's a biblical prohibition on considering your self-interest. Now, I think allowing your self-interest to override every other concern is something we ought to be careful about. But the first question is just, well, what is your self-interest in this election? What, what phase of life are you in? How might political decisions intersect with, with you and your family and, and, and your, your personal future? It's important to, it's important to wrap your head around that. Uh, and then secondly, what, what passions, what experiences God, has God given you that influence your, your politics and your priorities? Back, back to the idea that people can be faithful and vote in different ways. I expect if a Christian works for a, a, a global poverty organization, an international development organization, that they're going to weigh a presidential candidate's opinion on a foreign aid budget or on global poverty more than the average Christian. It's what you know best. It's what you're working on. It can be really hard to vote vote in one way when so much of the rest of your life is oriented in one direction. Uh, I'm adopted, and so I pay particular attention to candidates' position on issues like the adoption tax credit. Not because I believe in some, like, general sense that you know, adoption's more important or should be more important to Christians than dozens of other issues. But for me, it's something that's touched my life. It's something I'm, I, I know a lot about, it's something that I work on quite a bit. So it makes sense for me to weigh that a bit differently. So what passions and experiences got? Are you very involved in local schools because you got kids in school and, and, and you're, you've gotten to know the education system real well? Well, you might you might weigh education differently because that's what's taken up a lot of your a lot of your thought life a, a, a lot a lot of what you do with your time and, and I think that's important to consider um, then I'd ask you to think about the particular moment we're in what are the signs of the time what, what do you think our country needs and your neighbors need that's particular to this moment that we're in. And I won't belabor that point. The, the fourth question I'd ask is, you know, the Catholics have this idea of the preferential option for the poor. Other Christian traditions say it a different way. What's absolutely clear through Scripture is um, we ought to have special attention towards those in need, those facing injustice, those who are poor. And so think particularly about your community, but you also outside of that, what are local, what are nonprofits that work with those in need suggesting they, they, they're looking for in this election? Hopefully you belong to a local church that includes people from different backgrounds that you're in. If you're middle income, well, what, what, what do members of your congregation that are lower income, what, what are they facing in their lives? What are folks from different racial, ethnic backgrounds? How are they thinking about this election? What are people in different lines of work than you saying about thinking about this election? So consult people who are differently placed than you 
with a particular preference for those who are vulnerable, the disinherited, and and then take on those burdens as your own. So you know what your self-interest is, and that doesn't go away, that doesn't evaporate. But then think about the needs of others, and be really careful about not giving answers to those questions that are all about serving the first question, all about serving your self-interest, and then you rationalize everything else that follows. And then the, the, the final question I ask is, if your vote was the vote that decided the election, would you be happy with the vote that you cast? In other words, there's a lot of conversation here about voting as if the main thing that should be on a Christian's mind is voting in a way that leaves one without a blemish in their own minds. And I don't have time to get into, for those who want to work within a complicity framework, I would ask questions like, if the goal is to evade complicity, are you not as, com- uh, is there not a complicity in what you do not do? As opposed to just thinking about complicity in terms of the things that you do. But I, I've just come to think that these conversation about complicity and conscience, it, it just misses the mark. Voting is a moral act. Absolutely. But the principal moral question with a vote in this society, in this system of government, where you are a citizen who already has the influence and the responsibility to vote, the moral question is, are you stewarding that influence toward the good of your neighbors as best as you know how? And so, what I would advise people to think about, and this is not a leading question, faithful Christians can come to different conclusions here. I'm not, this is, these are the same questions I've, I've asked in midterm elections and previous presidential elections. What I, what I want folks to consider is, if your vote was the vote that decided the election, would you be happy about the impact it had? Are you using your vote in a way to advance the best viable outcome in this election for your neighbors. That's it. That's what I have to offer. Again, would uh, encourage you to read Reclaiming, uh, go to reclaiminghope.substack.com. You could read my full essay, my full post on uh, how to think about voting. And, I, you know, I'll, I'll just reiterate that uh, the church is going to be needed after this election, no matter what the outcome is. And we we, we just shouldn't lose sight of that. All right, there were other issues I wanted to cover, but those are going to have to wait until the episode after the election. Folks wondering, uh, and a lot of the questions that folks ask on social really have to do with the outcome of the election. Sort of if, if Biden wins, sort of if Biden wins, you know, what, what effect will it have on this issue or that issue if Trump wins? Or, or if, uh, it, well, one question that came in was, you know, if Trump loses, what, what does that mean for the Republican Party? Well, we'll, we'll try and address those questions in, in a post-election episode. There was one comment and one request that I, I did want to close this episode with. And that was, uh, a request. And that actually let me pull up the, the, the name here of the, uh, of, of the person who asked it. Uh, Kevin Sheen, who's been a long time, uh, a listener and someone who's, who I've engaged with, uh, for a while on, on, on Twitter at least. Kevin asked for a prayer for our nation, regardless of the election outcome. And uh, that that's how I want to close. That's how I want to close this. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to pray for us. Father, 
we uh we come to you knowing that you are king, that you are sovereign, and you will be no less sovereign after this election than you are right now. And we will have no less trust that you are bringing your kingdom a week from now than we are today. Our trust is in you, not in princes. We just ask that you uh, will be with us, be with our country, uh, no matter what happens, that you will bless us, and that the outcome of our election might be used by you as, as you will, and that no matter what the outcome of the election, we will double down on our commitment not to candidates, not to political parties, but to you and because of our commitment to you, to our neighbors, uh, that a political outcome would not decrease the investment we have in the flourishing of our communities, in loving our neighbors. Help us to be gracious with one another. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help us to be forgiving. Help us to keep perspective. Help us to be conformed to the likeness of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the work of justice and righteousness that you are doing in the world and the fact that uh, you invite us to, to join in that work. Amen. All right, folks. You won't hear from me again until, at least on this podcast, <laughs> until after the election. Godspeed, y'all. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.